All right, so how many of you were here two weeks ago? We went through, well, the, the selected text of verses 1 through 12 in chapter 3 of Proverbs, and we actually looked at last time, verses 1 through 8. This morning, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. And so why don't we go ahead and just read through the whole unit, the whole section, starting in, in verse 1, just because, like I said, the, we want to understand anything we read in the Bible, we want to understand in context, and, and basic context is just what came before it and what came after it, especially if it's part of one unit. One, one uh, in, in this case, Solomon's lecture to his son. He, he's not saying each of these things on separate occasions. This is part of one conversation. And so let's read along. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your hearts. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce, Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so the the big idea in this passage, and we talked about this last time, what's presented to us here in these 12 verses is that wholehearted devotion to the Lord is the essence of wise living. You want to begin to pursue wisdom, you want to become wise, well, the essence of the pursuit of wisdom and the essence of wise living is wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Not an intellectual pursuit. It's a moral pursuit. It's a relationship, a relational pursuit. And guess what? What do we see in this passage? It, it also shows that if you devote yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord, you will also be blessed. We have already seen in verses 1 through 8, blessings listed here, uh, they include the following, longer life, peace, favor from God and from men, a good reputation, moral protection, and even mental and and physical well-being. So what does wholehearted devotion to the Lord look like? It includes three basic qualities, and we mentioned this last time. Obedience, humility, and gratitude. That is, obedience to God. We saw that in verses 1 through 4. And in verses 5 through 8, we saw the principle of humility before God. And this morning, we're going to look at the final quality, gratitude towards God in verses 9 through 12. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, this third quality. Now, you may have noticed that the words gratitude, thanksgiving, they're not mentioned in verses 9 through 12, are they? It doesn't doesn't say uh, thankfulness or gratitude or give thanks. However, showing gratitude 
towards God and being thankful for what he has given, I would say is the, the basic idea that's implied in these verses. And as we take a closer look at this particular section, verses 9 through 12, here's what we're going to see. Material wealth and divine discipline are good gifts from God. Material wealth and divine discipline, they're both good gifts from God, gifts for which we ought to be thankful. And we're going to see how we should express our gratitude to God for these good gifts that we receive from Him. And we're also going to see the particular blessings that will result from responding to Him in this way. So let's look at verse 9. Start in verse 9. Uh, verse nine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So to honor the Lord literally means to view Him as heavy or weighty, and to respond to him in a way that displays this. And to be heavy or weighty means to have great value or worth. Something's worth its weight in gold. You see that? So something that's heavy or weighty has great value or worth. So when you honor the Lord, you're responding to him in a way that displays his worthiness. And it outwardly shows that you value him. And think of um, this idea of uh, awarding someone a medal, right? It's, it's an outward display. It's an act of honoring that person. And that act of honoring that person actually makes it visible to those around that that person is worthy. And also the one who is honoring that person values that person or is expressing that this person has worth. Do you see that? So to honor the Lord means to respond in a way that displays this. So perhaps you can think of numerous ways that you can and should honor the Lord. Just think about that in general. Things that you've read in Scripture and all that. How can you honor the Lord with your life? Just as we should acknowledge Him in all our ways. We saw that. We already looked at that. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. Well, it would be right for us to honor Him in everything, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you say it's, that's a good principle to live by? Honor the Lord with my life. Honor Him in everything. But notice... Notice verse 9. What does verse 9 say? The call to honor the Lord is focused on one area in particular, here. Solomon says, honor the Lord with your wealth. With your wealth. And your wealth basically refers to your money and your material possessions. And it's whatever you have that is of value. Monetary value, not sentimental value. But we're talking about monetary value, something that could be sold or exchanged. But really, it's your material possessions and your money. So that's the call here. It's focused in on this area of our, our wealth. We honor the Lord with our wealth. And here's something to keep in mind. Wealth, when we hear that term, it's not something only rich people have. Is it? You don't have to be wealthy or rich in order to honor the Lord with your wealth. This is a call to honor the Lord with what you have, what you have. Now look at the second part of verse 9. Solomon says, honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your produce. Now these are agricultural terms, which is fitting because if we think about this, ancient Israel, agrarian society, agricultural society, Cultivating the land and raising livestock, that was the primary means by which they sustained themselves and generated wealth, isn't it? So, honor the Lord with your, the first fruits of all your produce. Produce refers to one's crops. It's what the land brought forth or produced. 
which one would gather in at harvest. And first fruits refers to the earliest and best portions, the earliest and best portions of one's produce. So to honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your produce means that before you begin consuming what you bring in, you give the first and the best portions to God. That's what the first fruits is. Before you begin consuming the harvest, you're going to set aside the first and best portions and give it to the Lord. So it'll be helpful if we look at some of the giving laws for Israel. Again, context is important. And this is Solomon, king of Israel, speaking wisdom to his son. They are Israelites. They have a covenant with God. They are under the law of God, the law of Moses. And so they were prescribed certain obligations. And one of those was tithing. And we're going we're gonna to just take a look at some passages just because I, I want you to see that when he's saying this, he's, he, there are some specific ways that he would have, Solomon's son would have understand this exhortation on our Lord with his wealth, with the first fruits of his crops, of his produce. In Leviticus 27, 30, this is just this, this command to tithe. And, and are you familiar, familiar with the word tithing? A tithe is what? One-tenth. That's all it means. A tenth part. A tenth, a tenth portion. Ten percent. And here's, here's what it says. God's command to the people of Israel. Every tithe, every tenth, of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And then verse 32. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. And so the tithe, just so you know, the whole purpose of that, well, God commanded them to give a tenth. The whole purpose of it was to go to the Levites, the tribe of Levi. We have the the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi. God had set them apart and given them the task and the responsibility to be in charge of leading and maintaining the whole system of worship that God had set in place for the nation of Israel. That was their responsibility. That was their calling by God. They were set apart for that. And the tithe was to support them to lead and maintain the soul system of worship. God commanded Israel to worship him in a certain way through the, worship, uh, the temple, the sacrificial system. There are strict guidelines. You see that when you read the Old Testament. And so this tithe was basically the tax that supported their system of government, which, by the way, was a theocracy, which means God was the king. He was their king, and his laws were to govern their nation. You see that? So a tithe really was, in a way, like their tax, but it's something that God commanded them to give. And so that was one way that was obvious that God had called them to honor, them, honor him with their wealth. And then we see there's also appointed feasts in the law of God for his people Israel. If we looked at in Exodus... And again, when you read uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, a lot of these laws are reiterated. They're given at one point, and they're going to be reiterated later, maybe expanded upon. You're going to see these commands that God gave to his people to govern them as a nation that they might not only uh, have governing in their society, but that they would order their lives rightly under his reign, his rule, and worship him rightly. And so God said with these appointed feasts, holidays, he said the best... Of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So we see a specific call to honor him with their 
first fruits. And specifically, if we went to the book of Leviticus, and you could, if you want, you can turn there. That would be on page 101 in the Bibles we provide. But it gets into details of some of these, these feasts or these celebrations or these holidays that have them bring in their first fruits. In Leviticus 23, we have the feast of first fruits, which specifically was the barley harvest. And again, it's something to keep in mind. As an agrarian society, they have all these crops. Well, there's different times of the year that certain crops are harvested. And so we have the barley harvest, and the Feast of first fruits is what this one is called, this holiday. God commanded them to observe this, and he says this, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. So he's expected that you bring the first fruits before you're consuming it. You bring that first and best portion to me. And then there's the Feast of the Harvest, or Feast of Weeks, or also known as Pentecost. And this was the wheat harvest. And in Leviticus 23, 17, it picks up, You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And this also included, if we looked elsewhere in Deuteronomy, this included the opportunity to bring a free will offering. So above and beyond what God said, bring this to, on this holiday, a free will offering was on top of that, whatever your heart desired to honor the Lord with your first fruits. And in this, during this holiday, in verse 22, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So even in his commands of Israel, these laws, the the taxation and the, the holidays that he set aside for them, he expected that when they yielded the produce of their crops, that they wouldn't be penny pinchers in a sense. When they're harvesting, that they would allow there to just be some left over to care for the poor. So God cared about his honor, but it also included caring about the poor among them. And then we have the Feast of the Ingathering, which is also called the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. And this is the general fall harvest. This would be other things like other grains or olives or grapes this time of year. They would observe this holiday. And the command was, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. And so the first fruits were given to God as a sign of gratitude. And you see these commands. Yes, these are commands. These are laws for his people. But the whole point was it was for them to show their gratitude and to recognize that everything had come from his hand. So when you say, here's, here's what the land has produced, here's my crop, to take the first and the best before anything else and to give it to the Lord, that's a sign of gratitude. And to understand that all of that came from him. I'm going to honor him with the first fruits. And we see the motive for these feasts and honoring the Lord in Deuteronomy 26. God says, and behold, well, the the prescription he gave, and he actually called them to uh, come and observe this feast, and the person was to come and present it to the priest at the temple, and they were to 
make this pronouncement. Behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. Now let's look back at Proverbs. Again, I wanted to show you that because this isn't just uh, these, these words of wisdom aren't in, in a, a vacuum. You know, a real point in history, in the context of the Old Testament, ancient Israel, these terms would have directed their thoughts and attention to specific things that God had called them to do. So we look back at Proverbs, and here, here's the promise of blessing that Solomon gives to his son, and really to those who honor the Lord with their wealth and with the first fruits of their produce. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, the barns were the storehouses for the harvested crops, and to be filled with plenty, it doesn't mean that they were they would just be like filled enough. They would just have enough. The picture is that the barns would be stuffed full to the point of bursting at the seams, so to speak. And this would also be the case with the vats, also known as wine presses. The wine press was made of two parts. You'd have the, the upper part, was the crushing sink. Put all those grapes in there. You'd crush them. And then there's the lower part, the collecting sink, that would collect all the juice from the grapes as they were crushed, and that juice would ferment and become wine. And the promise of blessing is your wine presses will be bursting with wine. So here's the promised blessing. If we, if we look at what, what is said in verse 10, here's the idea. Solomon says to his son, honor the Lord with your income by faithfully giving to him the first portions as he has commanded you, and he will faithfully supply you with more than enough. That's the general idea. And such a blessing was definitely in keeping with God's covenant with Israel. Again, God promised his people Israel material prosperity. Not just spiritual, but material in the land he was going to give them for their obedience. You keep my laws, you honor me, I'm going to bless you abundantly. And yes, you will be materially prosperous. That's how it worked. That's the system he set up. Those are the promises he made to Israel. And for their disobedience, had a whole list of curses that would come upon them. He was their king. These were his laws for his people. And Deuteronomy 28 is one of those specific places where you see all these promises of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. It says in Deuteronomy 28, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. And on in verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns, and in all that you undertake. And elsewhere, we see that God was consistent with this promise of blessing with his people. Much later in Israel's history, in the book of Malachi, we see in chapter 3 of Malachi, they weren't being obedient in the area of honoring the Lord with their wealth. Here's what he communicated to them through his prophet. Will, a, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. It's the temple. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. You see that? So real promises of blessing here. It would be wise to honor the Lord with your wealth. As an Israelite, when you hear that, it is wise. And God commanded part, part of his law for his people would be to honor him with their wealth. And there was a promise of blessing. So here's the challenging part. How does the principle in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, how does that come into play or uh, come to play in our lives as Christians today? That's the big question, right? It's the million-dollar question. We're neither farmers. Some of you might be, I'm not sure. But we don't live in an agrarian society, but we're neither farmers for the most of us, nor none of us are Old Testament Israelites. Right? be pretty old. So first of all, although we're not farmers living in agrarian society, let's just look at the principle here, okay? We see these agricultural terms, but the principle of giving that Solomon's communicating here remains the same for us. A farmer works the land, and the harvest from his crops is his income, which he lives off of. With With this income, he's called to honor God by giving to God the first and best of it. Likewise, You also, in in one way or another, you work for a living and you generate income, which primarily comes in the form of money. In this day and age, we usually don't uh, get our income through goods and everything that we're going to go trade and barter and all that stuff. We get money. And so that's the form of our income. And the call is for you to honor the Lord with your income by devoting the first portion of it to him. In other words, you're going to take from right off the top. You look at what you you make, take a portion right off the top, and give it to the Lord. That's, That's the principle. That's the picture. That's the idea. You don't have heaps of grains, but there's a number, a paycheck, a bank account, whatever, and it's the same idea right off the top. Before I start consuming that, right off the top, I'm going to take a portion and devote it to the Lord to give it to him. The idea is that you're not giving to God your leftovers. There's a big difference, isn't there? You're not giving him your leftovers. You're giving to him first as an expression of gratitude because you know that all you have comes from him, right? And you're giving to him first as an expression of faith because Guess what? I mean, do you, do you trust that he's going to continue to provide and meet your needs? So it's just an expression of gratitude to God. And it is an expression of my trust in him. He's provided for me. He meets all my needs. Do I need to fret and worry? Remember what Jesus said? I don't have to worry about all these things that the unbelieving world worries about. Your Heavenly Father cares for you. Just the fun part. Application. We're going to spend some time in application. Look at what you make. Each and every one of you, look at what you make and first set aside a portion, a portion that you have personally 
you have personally decided on to give to the Lord as an act of worship. That's your application. And by the way, it's a portion you've personally decided on freely, willingly, cheerfully. Then, with the rest, live off the rest. Use it to provide for your needs, for your family's needs. Use some of it to to save up, save up some of it. For future uh, expenses, you know, we do have planned expenses that we foresee. We're going to save up for that. Or just for unplanned expenses. Wouldn't it be foolish if we just spent everything that came, all of our income? Because we know that, do we know what tomorrow's going to bring? You might need something on hand. Saving is wise. But use it as you see fit. As long as it isn't for evil. I guess that would be the general principle. You know, use your money as you see fit. As long as it's not for evil, and as long as it doesn't hinder you from doing what is right and good. And that's something that each and every one of you can assess, can think about, reflect on uh, for you personally in your circumstances. And as far as it depends on us, we should choose to live within a standard of living that will give us room to be generous and to honor the Lord with our wealth. Do you see that? So we have, a, we have a standard of living that, we, in a sense, we choose this for ourselves. Sometimes we're negatively influenced. There, it might be, I mean, it might be this, this covetousness. Maybe I see what the world has or other people, and I'm like, I want to live like that. But consider how much you make. Are you living outside of your means? It would be very foolish to do that, to be drowning in debt because you wanted to have what other people have. But just think about your circumstances, what you make, and then live within those means. But actually, when I see what I make, if I devote a portion of that to the Lord, I'm deciding I'm going to live off this. Take a first portion off the top. And now that we understand that the principle of giving our first fruits to God, here's the question, the next question we need to answer. How can we give our wealth to the Lord? Honor the Lord with your wealth, right? right I'm going I'm to devote this to God. Okay, what do you do with it? How do, you, how do you honor it, honor the Lord with that? How do you, we say, give it to the Lord. How do you give it to him? We're not ancient Israelites living under the old covenant. We already made that clear. We're not under the law of Moses. So uh, how are we to give to the Lord as present-day Christians? We don't have this temple. Bring it to the temple. Give it to the priest where God's glory dwells. I mean, I'm giving it to the Lord. What does that look like for us today? Well, here's how. Based on what the New Testament says, okay, if we're just going to read through the New Testament, consider everything that it tells us concerning the the issue of our wealth, of our money. This should be our primary application. Again, here's the thing with applications. There are many applications that we can get from a text. So I'm going to suggest to you this is our primary application because these areas are clear in the New Testament for us as followers of Christ. Our primary application should be this. Make it a priority to give a portion of your income that you decide upon, willingly, cheerfully, freely. Make it a priority that is the first fruits, the top portion before you're spending it. It's not the leftovers. To give a portion of your income to support the gospel ministry of your local church. It's the ministry of God's word, which includes helping those who are in need among you. Does that sound familiar with some stuff that we read in the New Testament? 
So that's the primary application. How do I honor the Lord with my wealth? I take off the top a portion that I've decided to honor him. I know it all comes from him. I'm grateful. I'm trusting that he'll continue to meet my needs. I want to honor him in this area of my life as he's called me to do. It's wisdom. How do I do that? primary way I can do that is support the gospel ministry of a local church and contribute to meeting the needs of the saints. So look at the people around you. Look at the people around you. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. They're precious. Are their spiritual needs important to you? People in this room, are their spiritual needs important to you? I would hope so. Are their physical needs important to you? If somebody was completely destitute, didn't even have shelter anymore, they were out of work and they had nothing, wouldn't you want to help them? Wouldn't you care for them? So, God is honored when you use some of the wealth He's given you to help meet the needs of His children. And remember, your wealth includes your money and your possessions. But here's why I say that. He's honored when you use some of the wealth he's given you to help meet the needs of his children because do we only have physical needs? We have spiritual needs, don't we? And in some ways, our spiritual needs are even greater, but they're not to the exclusion of our material needs. So that's how we honor the Lord with our wealth. Supporting gospel ministry in our local churches meeting a spiritual need that we all need. So some clear New Testament teaching on the matter, and here's what I want to do. We're going to do kind of a survey of just some of these passages. Some of you are familiar with these, but some of you haven't either been exposed to them or carefully read them or given them as much consideration. But first, we're going to look on this issue of financial support of gospel ministry. Like I said, this is, this is clear from the New Testament, so I want to show you where we're getting this. Philippians 4, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 15. Paul writes this, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Think about that. Financial giving, Paul says it's partnership in gospel ministry. And he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Your financial giving to support the gospel ministry of your church not only partnership is an act of worship. This is worship. And he says in verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All right, now there's the issue of financially supporting gospel ministry, which does include supporting people. Not just an organization, but we're thinking about people when we're giving. And New Testament gives us clear examples. Church leaders is one of them, which would be pastors, elders, overseers, same thing. Those who are, who are leading God's people, overseeing them, keeping watch over their souls. And 
church members. We see some examples. Uh, Church members who are unable to provide for themselves and do not have family members to provide for them. You see, so when we talk about need, we're talking about real needs here. And an example that we see specifically in Scripture are elderly widows. And so we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul says this to Timothy, Honor widows who are truly widows. And by the way, honor is specifically referring to financially supporting them, helping to meet their material needs. Honor widows who are truly widows, and he qualifies that. He says that they're left all alone. They don't even have family to take care of them. Because he does say family needs to take care of them first. Don't burden the church if there's family to take care of them. But we're talking about those who have no one. They're all alone. You're going to honor them and you care for them. And then later on, and he does have a whole list of qualifications for that. They, the church, he doesn't want the church to be uh, careless with doling out money. There's a process to use it wisely to meet these needs. And then he says in verse 17, in chapter 5, verse Timothy, then he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Interesting thing, in, in, in Old Testament Israel, you had those who were ministers of, at the temple and all that stuff. God had set them apart. That was their, their job, their full-time job. And God set up the system of giving that, hey, part of this is going to support them so they can keep doing this service that I've called them to do. So there's, kind of, there's similarity there. But again, I'm not a Levitical priest. You're not commanded to tithe. Okay? But the idea is the same. We're taking care of God's people. Now let's look at probably the fullest passage that deals with, with the, the topic of giving. 2 Corinthians chapter, chapters 8 and 9. We're just going to kind of work through that. Read that. You can turn there in your Bibles. It might be helpful just because we're just going to move right through these verses. 2 Corinthians. Let's see if I can get a page number for some of you here. Chapter 8, page 967 is where it starts. The Bibles we provide. And in and, and these chapters, this is where we clearly see the principles, I would say, of, of Proverbs chapter 3, 9, and 10. I mean, where do we see this? Do we see this in the New Testament at all? We do. And I would say it's right here in, in 2 Corinthians. And it sheds more light on the matter of blessings resulting from God honoring generosity. And so let's read. Let's, let's see what the New Testament says to us as Christians. Paul writes this We want you to know, brothers, Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They weren't doing so well in a material sense. Extreme poverty. They were going through hardship. And yet he says, This overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Churches in Macedonia. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
And what he was doing, this specifically the issue here was he was having the churches set aside money to take a collection so they could come and, and give and help provide for the saints in Jerusalem. There were, there, there were a lot that were in extreme need, and he was taking a collection for them. And what we see here, they were begging, to, they were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in that, for the relief of the saints, even though they weren't very well off themselves. They wanted to take part. So God-honoring financial giving, it's, it's, not only reser- it's not reserved only for the rich or for everyone who happens to have more than you. I'm like, well, they have more than me. I mean, they, they can give. God probably gave them the gift of giving, right? But all I got to say is don't rule yourself out. Don't rule yourself out and as a result, miss out. Look at the Macedonians. Verse 5. And this, their giving, this overflowing of generosity on their part, uh, it, was, it was not as we expected, they, they, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything... In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love, excel in this act of grace, generosity, giving. I say this, verse 8, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that your love is also genuine. I'm trying to motivate you. Look at their earnestness. And I want you to take part so that it'll prove that your love is also genuine. Interesting, huh? That giving was a sign that man, they really did love them. Because it's easy to love with word and tongue, right? Things we say. Love them. Brothers in Christ over there. I'll be praying for them, but you know I've got some stuff I got to take care of financially or whatever. I mean, it was a joy and a privilege to actually express that tangibly, and it proved that their love was genuine. Verse nine: For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, our example, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So giving here, we see, we look at the example of Christ. And giving is a sacrifice, is it not? Isn't giving a sacrifice? And the principle of sacrificial giving is seen in the example of Christ. And again, just another thing to think about. If, if my giving, if it's my leftovers, what is that saying? What, what am I expressing there? And if it, is, if it is so little, if it's just like pocket change, there's a couple quarters, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't feel like it costs me anything, is that really, am I really honoring the Lord? Giving is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. And Paul goes on, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So, now, finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. 
For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Get that point, by the way, according to what you have. So you don't, well, a guy wrote a $5,000 check to the church. I mean, man, it's like maybe I should do that as an act of faith. I mean, according to what you have, not what you don't have. It's acceptable. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. When he's taking this collection, the whole point's not, hey, so, so, so they can be, you know, have it easy going and you be burdened. You know, give to the point you're burdened so they can just make things easy for them. He's not saying that. That's not the point. But he says it, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, equality, care for the saints that's reciprocated. And it goes on, we'll move to chapter 9. And again, the reason I'm doing this is because we want to see in the New Testament, there are these principles in Proverbs 3, they're, they're very clear for the church as well. Chapter 9, starting in verse 5, Paul continues regarding this collection they're giving. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. You picture that? Something that's been a year in the making, we're taking this collection everything, Paul shows up, and it's like, uh, yeah, we said we were going to do that, right? Okay, oh, uh, man, they feel obligated. It's like scraping stuff together. I mean, he doesn't want them to be in that situation. He's like, you know, this is your desire, complete it. You know, start setting aside. So when I come, it's going to be ready and it's willing and not felt like an, an exaction, like you're forced to do it. And he says in verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, and again, here's where we're going to see this parallel to Proverbs. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Sow to plant, reap, is reap the harvest. And then in seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Probably be good to memorize that verse. That's, that's the primary standard for Christian giving right there. Remember, we're not, we're not under the laws that God specifically gave to Israel. The nation of Israel, under the old covenant, before Christ, which included the obligation to tithe. That was an, a law for the Israelites. We're not under that obligation. Are you obligated to tithe, Christian? Are you obligated to give 10%? A specific number of your income? Okay, just want to make sure we're clear because some people really like to hit that issue a little too much to make it seem like it's an obligation. Christian giving is, is most like, if we're going to compare it to anything in the Old Testament, it's most like that free will offering that I told you about. You freely, willingly, and cheerfully determine the amount that you want to give and you give it. It's a free will offering. And Paul says in verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound. To you, in grace, I mean, the whole context of the passage, what he's talking about is material provision. God's financial and material provision. God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God gives back lavishly to generous, cheerful givers, as, as one commentator says, not so that they may satisfy selfish, 
non-essential desires, but so that they may meet the variety of needs others have. It's important to get that point. And he says in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, this is God, He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, really for the whole world, He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And I, there's one commentator that said this, and I just love this quote. He said, They that do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. Are we seeing that clearly presented to us? And, and we don't want to miss that because we know in this world, especially in this country, there's a lot of bad preaching. There's a lot of bad theology. There's a lot of bad belief about the whole issue of money and material things. So when even we say the word prosperity, we're like, you know? Ask Jeremy about prosperity preaching. (laughs) All right? That should rile us up. But we want to understand it biblically. And this whole idea, this promise of of blessing, God's going to supply as you give. Why is he supplying more for you? Is so you can keep doing it. Because that is a good work. They that do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. And Paul continues, you'll be rich, enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So God's honored through your giving. People give thanks. He's honored. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. You. Financial giving, giving to the support the local gospel or the gospel ministry of your local church and includes the meaning of the needs of the saints, not just spiritual, but also their physical needs for those who truly are in need, results in God's honor, being honored and glorified and given thanks. So here's an important reminder. As you give to honor the Lord, He will give you increase in His own timing and in His own way. Don't don't forget that. That's important. As you give to honor the Lord, He will give you increase. Because again, we read in the New Testament, they weren't just saying, well, I just meant, you know, like spiritually, you'll feel better, you'll have joy as you're sacrificially giving. He said, no, God's going to give you increase so that you can keep being generous. But guess what? This increase comes in his own timing and in his own way. And the purpose of that increase is so that you will continue to give from that increase and be generous and selfless. That's why he's going to give you increase, so that you would continue to give from the increase he's given you and continue to be generous and selfless. Not, he's not going to give you increase so that you would hoard it it's like, ah, oh, paid off. All right, now I'm setters in my retirement. Mm. 
He's not giving you increase so that you would hoard it. He's not giving you increase so that you would use it only to satisfy or indulge selfishly in the pleasures of this life as if this life was the only thing worth living for. You don't live your life that way, do you? You don't view your life that way. This is it, man. This life, my earth. I I want my best life now. That's not Christian thinking. So God's not giving you increase so you would just indulge in the pleasures of this life. And He's not going to give you increase so that you would love the gift instead of the giver. Those who view Proverbs 3, 9-10 through 10 as some formula to get rich rather than as a means to honor the Lord are either, one, they're either making the error of isolating these verses from what the rest of Scripture says, and therefore they're misunderstanding it, they're misapplying it, they're in error. Or worse, they're showing that they really love and serve money. Not God. Those who see Proverbs 3, 9-10 through 10 as some kind of formula, get me rich, make it good for me in this life, they don't fear, they don't fear the Lord. Well, they see Him as useful to their own selfish ends. And guess what? God's assessment of them, Proverbs, they're fools. So here's why it's important. When you look at 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 3, look at, look at what we just looked at leading up to that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. So you don't take Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 and say, in my wealth, I'm doing this. He's going to, you know. And forget that you're called to trust Him with all your heart and fear Him. There's another important reminder. The promise of blessing for honoring the Lord with your wealth, that we see in verse 10, as I said, it will be fulfilled in God's timing and in God's way. It's, it's not necessarily going to happen immediately. And if it comes later rather than sooner, there's a good reason why. Wouldn't you just assume there's a good reason why? You know, I write a big check for the church and like check my bank accounts. You know, oh, dude, where's my increase? It's not necessarily going to happen immediately. I'm not saying that it couldn't. But it's not necessarily going to happen immediately. And I would say that when that happens, there's a good reason why. We just got to trust. When it comes to interpreting our experiences or circumstances in life, we can't be leaning on our own understanding. Again, what is the rest of this chapter telling us? Don't be leaning on your own understanding. Rather, we must be trusting in the Lord with all our heart. We don't see everything. We don't know everything. God does. He's the one who does. And he's good and faithful. So I shouldn't like look at my circumstances and, and try, to, try to figure out what God's doing. Well, this is happening, so I think that means God thinks this way or feels about me this way. Or maybe he's not really, maybe this thing and this blessing that he, he's, he's promised, this, this idea of giving me increase, maybe he didn't really mean it. No, I'm not going to try to interpret my circumstance or experience. That's, that's bad practice. It's just like trusting in your feelings rather than in the objective truth of the Word of God. This is your firm foundation. So God knows everything. He sees everything. So in His own timing, in His own way, this promise will be fulfilled, giving you increase. He's good and He's faithful. And here's another thing we need to do. Keep an eternal perspective. 
when you die, you have your earthly life, when you kick the bucket, is that it? No more existence. So, hey, uh, God, uh, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're on a, t- uh, a time limit here because when I, when I die, I mean, that was it, your opportunity to give me increase. In the book of Proverbs, here's the thing. Even in the book of Proverbs, you read through there, the wise are shown to be those who trust in the Lord and enjoy an unending relationship with Him. And in the end, by the way, notice I said unending relationship with Him. In the end, the fools and the wicked, they're portrayed as those who will be swept away in judgments. But the wise, the righteous, they will remain. So Proverbs gives us that picture that the wise and the righteous, those who walk in relationship with God, uh, it's not just limited to the days in this earthly life. There's this, this picture of it continuing on. So we're waiting for, what are we waiting for? The coming of the kingdom of God, that's what we're waiting for. We've been reconciled to God. We've been granted citizenship in his kingdom through faith in his son. And when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on the earth and reign forevermore, we will be granted entrance into his kingdom and we will reign with him and we will enjoy, enjoy eternal life with him in his glorious presence. And he once again, perfect creation. It's important to know what the Bible says about what's to come. We have a, a living hope. This is what we hope in. This is what's to come. So I ask you, Christians, will God ultimately fulfill all of his promises of blessings for those who are his? Will he ultimately fulfill all of them? For those who are wise, for those who know him and trust him and fear him and honor him, he will ultimately fulfill all that he's promised to bless them with. Consider the life of Christ. This is always helpful. You might be thinking, if I look at the life of Christ, this idea of increase, abundance, you know, again, longer life, this you know, physical well-being, I mean, He was the suffering servant. And he went to the cross. But he was perfect in wisdom. He was was the righteous one. He knew no sin. He was without sin. But remember, his life didn't end on the cross, did it? That's an important thing to keep in mind. He didn't end on the cross. He is risen. So did bountiful blessings come to him? They ultimately did. And I love this quote. One commentator says this, Today our Lord enjoys life and prosperity. Saints around the world praise Him, and at His name every knee will bow. When we travel the road from the cross to the tomb to His resurrection and ascension into heaven, we can say His is a straight path. As the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Let us then fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And by the way, and this, is, this will be the conclusion. I know we're tight, but this is the conclusion. We're not going to spend a lot of time. Verses 11 and 12. Think about this. Verses 9 and 10, they're balanced out with verses 11 and 12, which say this. Solomon goes on after he said that concerning wealth and this idea, promise of blessing. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. To despise the Lord's discipline, it's to to refuse it. It's to reject it. It's to 
ignore it or refuse to be trained by it. And to be weary of the Lord's reproof, his, his rebuke, his scolding, I mean, that's the picture there. It's an emotional, an emotional reaction. It is, it's to hate it and to feel disgust by it, to be repulsed by it. And we see this idea of discipline. Well, it, it refers to training. We've looked at this already in, in chapter 1. It refers to training, and the discipline of God includes both his instruction and his correction. Instruction and correction. Correction, reproof being the idea of correction. And he does this through life's experiences in order to develop and strengthen our character so that we may increase in godliness. That's what this discipline is for. God's will for our present earthly life is our increasing sanctification. That we become more and more like his son. That's his will for you, Christian. Discipline is one of the means he uses in order to get us there. Discipline One, turns us away from sin and folly. That's the correction. But it also, two, it pushes us towards increasing godliness and wisdom. That's refinement. Correction, refinement. Sometimes God inflicts consequences on us in order to correct our sinful and foolish thinking and behavior. And other times, God brings trials into our life and allows us to experience suffering. Why? Suffering and hardship uh, in order to train us in godliness. It's, this is the Lord's discipline. And the truth that we see in verse 12 is that God's discipline is a sign of his love for you. It's a sign of his love. He disciplines us for our good. Now, is there a, a blessing if we receive the Lord's discipline and are grateful for it? Is there bless- I mean, if I receive the Lord's discipline, his correction, his training... Is there a blessing in that? Absolutely. Here's what it is. One commentator puts it this way, this idea that he's doing this in love, it benefits you, and it kind of brings this whole passage into perspective. He says, as the loving father, God desires the son to experience the blessings of the even verses that we were looking at. But the condition to realizing this goal is satisfying the obligations of the odd verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. Fear Him. Walk in obedience. Honor Him with your wealth. And so to experience the blessings, He desires us to experience the blessings. He's going to help us get us there. So it says that He imposes discipline on the Son to conform Him to its obligations. And by that, He's proving His love. God is not indifferent to His children. He wants us to know and experience the blessings of his wisdom, and he disciplines us in order to get us there because he loves us. That's the picture. So, Christian, when you look at Proverbs 3, you understand that it absolutely, there is blessing and wisdom, blessing that God will bring in his own timing in his own way, but God's good, God is faithful, and this includes this process of pursuing wisdom is going to include the Lord's discipline, because guess what? He loves you and he wants you to experience his blessing. And guess what? This life ain't the only time we're going to experience any sort of blessing. We have eternity to look forward to. Amen? Well, why don't we pray? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, your truth, continuing to give us light in this fallen world. Father, help us to take heart what we've heard from your word this morning. 
May we honor you with our wealth from the top portions of what you give us. Father, keep our motives selfless and pure. May we be clothed with generosity. Father, keep us from loving money and loving this present world that is passing away. May our giving be done out of gratitude for what you have freely given us. May we also be grateful for your discipline, Lord, when we receive it. Because we know it is for our good that we may be made more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ, and share in your holiness. Amen.